podcast has bad words. <laughs> All right, y'all. We got a lot to talk about today. Um, before we talk about Company of One, we'll talk some more about, about Company of One. Uh, we're going to talk about minimalist business. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to we're going to we're going to get flagrant with with Paul Jarvis today. Um, we're going to we're going to answer a bunch of your questions. We had a ton of surprise questions today. We're going to play overrated or underrated. But first, I wanted to read some more about less. This article I have today is from Paul Jarvis. It's from uh, his website, which let me just say, first off, you're one of the few websites that I can just go and print stuff off. And I'm really grateful for that. <laughs> so thank you so much. No be- worries. Because uh, it's really helpful. Now, this article here is called Money Than Everything Else. Let's, uh, let's read this and then let's argue about it. And then let's agree, I think, hopefully. Right. Money Than Everything Else. A lot of times we pay attention to things in our business that aren't true markers of anything meaningful. Worse, we can let these false markers guide decisions in our work. One million followers on Twitter, one million newsletter subscribers, a million visitors to our website, one million downloads of our free software. It would be great to have any of those things, right? And sure, they can definitely help a business or show, or show a little bit that we're heading in the right direction. But still, any of those numbers may or may not translate into the real marker for a business. Money. Money earned means we're on the right track. Money earned means we're creating enough value for others to pay us. Money earned means we're making good decisions for our business. This is. I'm going to pause here for a minute because I agree that I think quite often... We, we, we try to act like money is not part of the equation, and, and it is. Especially if we're creative. Right, right, because it, we want to, the art should speak for itself, or I feel bad about promoting my own product or service, and I totally get that. Because the Terminus is like the, the cheesy infomercial sham wow guy who, who is like, we, we in our minds think if I write a book and then I'm going to seem like the sham wow guy if I want to promote this thing. Yeah. And that is a problem. I definitely don't want to come off like that. But there is so much ground in between not promoting or talking about your book ever and being the infomercial guy. And we need to find what's comfortable for us, but I also think sometimes we have to get a bit outside of our comfort zone. Because if you're proud of something you wrote, like I I wrote this book in, in 2011, and, well, Ryan and I wrote it in 2011, Minimalism. It's a book I'm really proud of. It's not a perfect book, but I can say, given the resources I had, the time, the attention, the skills, et cetera, back in, in 2011, this is the best I could do given those resources. I feel really good about it. I'm proud about it and, and I'm proud of it. Now, why shouldn't I then, if I'm proud of it, want people to get some value from it? Because if I just hide it and I don't do anything with it, I could stick it in a drawer. That's yeah. one thing. I created it. Well, so what? It's not solving anyone's problems in the world. It's not adding value to anyone's life if I don't get out there and find ways to creatively communicate this with people. So when we're talking about money, money is part of the equation. We have to realize that, like, in fact, if I make money from this book, that means that maybe I can make a living off of it and then I can 
afford to write the next book without having to still be in the corporate world yeah. and, and, and it'll allow, allow me more time to create on my own. Yeah. Profitable businesses don't go out of business. <laughs> <laughs> you can just keep going if you're, if you're continuing to make, to make money from it. Right. And the, where I get caught up though is where money beca- becomes the primary driver for doing what we do. And, and that becomes a problem because then we just start looking at quarterly results and as opposed to, and, and then it's, it's growth for growth's sake. Right. Yeah. And that becomes a problem. Yeah. I mean, for me, I know, I guess how much enough money is like, I know how much my business needs to make to cover my expenses to put money into savings and to support the lifestyle that I live. Mm-hmm. Past that, I don't need to keep chasing and 10xing and growing and all of those things, but I still need to make that amount of money to to cover my bases. Right. And so for me, it's always like, okay, and it, it becomes, if there, I find as well, if there is like an upper bound or a marker for like, okay, this is what, this is what I need to do this month or this is what I need to do this year, then it's not like, I just need more money or in some businesses, it's just like, oh, I just need more. And more is just like running towards the horizon. You're going to feel like, oh, I'm getting sweaty. Like this is a workout, but like, it's still, still over there. Like huh. you're, you're not getting any closer to it. Right. So if there's a, if there's a marker, if you're like, okay, well, this is how much, like, this is what I need to support my family. This is what I need to put money in a savings for retirement. This is how much I need for my expenses. And it's like, okay, well, I, that becomes one that becomes easier to reach because it's like, oh, there's this, there's this marker here now. There's this like goalpost that I can get to. Whereas if it's the other way, where if it's just more, then it's like, well, I just need more. Like I, I made a lot of money. I just need more. I made even more money. I just need more. I, th- I find that that horizon actually even gets farther away <laughs> the, the more you chase it, right? Yeah. We had Andrew Schultz on the podcast and he talked about, I don't understand why Jay-Z wants to be a billionaire. How stupid is that? Because as soon as he, he becomes a billionaire, he has like 900 million or something <laughs> now. As soon as he becomes a billionaire, you idiot, now you're the, you're the poorest billionaire yeah. there is. And and all of a sudden it's like, well, now I'm farther, you know, I'm farther away, become a millionaire and then you want to become a you know, multimillionaire and then you want to become a hundred millionaire. And then it's like, well, now it's a billion. Well, now I have to 10 X this thing. Yeah. Right. And, um, we're not, we're not stepping back and asking ourselves why. And what you're saying is I know the why behind the money I need to make. I need to pay my bills, uh, take care of my family. You know, I have you know, a mortgage and electricity and, and, and I have a standard set of bills that I need to pay and, and I need to put some money into you know, a SEP IRA or whatever the Canadian equivalent is. <laughs> um, and in and, and doing so, you say, okay, I know my why and I can yeah. feel comfortable about creating toward that why. And then anything else I get beyond that, it's gravy. And then I can decide what am I going to do with that? Maybe I'm contributing in a meaningful way, or maybe I'm saving more money for you know a, a rainy day or for emergency fund or for retirement. You can, you can find a home for that money as opposed to like, well, if I get more, then I'll just what, get more stuff or. Yeah. It's, and it's different for everybody. Like what that enough is, is different for everybody. Like if one of my buddies has four kids, he obviously needs more than I do who have no kids and sometimes um, rescued rats. Right. right, right. <laughs> well, and your enough will change over time yes. too. When I, when I, when I wrote this book, minimalism, my enough was, was for me, you know, I was, yeah. I was recently out of a marriage and I was living on my own and now I have a wife, I have a six year old daughter and my enough has changed as a result providing for them. So as your life circumstances change, enough will go up. It will be more sometimes, but you'll be able to identify what that more is. It's not just more, it's a thousand dollars more or it's $1,500 more or you know what, at this part point in my life, 
um, I figured out a way to get by with less. You know, I, I don't have a car payment, so it's it's five hundred forty five dollars less. That's the, what the average American spends on a car payment every month. By the way, uh, sixty nine months. I just saw the stat yesterday. Is the is the um, average car loan at this point? We have one point two trillion dollars in auto debt in the United States. I think it's similar in Canada. And I was reading on CBC, the um, Canadian news site, that most people, when they get a loan for their vehicle, the car is worth less than the amount that they owe for the majority of the life of that loan. Right. Yeah, that's scary. That's scary. Well, then the, then the additional, the more on top of that is like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have a 70-month uh, loan. And then I'm going to trade in my car for two years. It's going to be upside down at this point. So now I'm going to tack another you know, $10,000 onto this. I think the average car purchase now is $33,000. Um, so now I have a $43,000 loan for a $33,000 <laughs> yeah. yeah. car. And uh, there are some places that are doing 84-month loans now. It's just going to be a mortgage uh, at some point. Right. Well, in <laughs> mortgages. So for the longest time, there were only two countries that did 30-year mortgages. Yeah. It was us and Denmark, and now a bunch of other countries have caught on. But now we figured out, we had Chris Hogan on the show, and he talked about um, we're doing 40-year mortgages now, some banks are. <laughs> and um, it just, it, it's never, it never stops. It's, it's the more. It's like... It, you you don't figure out well what's the appropriate what's enough house wise for me it's like well if I do a forty year mortgage I guess I can afford well I, if I get this promotion and do a forty year mortgage I can afford three thousand dollars a month okay yeah let's let's buy the bigger house then as a result I was like well I don't, I don't need that in, in our documentary we did this heat map study where apparently we we use only forty percent of our homes in an average month only forty percent of our homes get used. And yet we are paying for all this additional space, not just the cost of the house, but the electricity and, yeah. and the worrying about the thing, the cleaning, the place, all this stuff. Um, you you built your house. Is that right? We bought the house that was custom built. Okay. And then he he turned it around and sold it to us, the guy who built it. It's a beautiful house, by the way. Thank you. People yeah. can find it on, on your social media. I'm sure you're, you're in there with uh, with your pet rats. What's up with the rats? They We currently, which is why I'm traveling right now, we've taken a break from because we usually adopt them from a local animal shelter oh wow which people don't realize like rats there's lots of rats and rabbits gerbils they're not like just running around no they have like little pens and stuff for them so we usually bring home we try we're the worst foster parents ever so every time we fostered (laughs) an animal we haven't given it back which kind of is not the point of fostering. So we're really good at adopting animals, not really good at fostering them because uh-huh. we keep them. Right now, we don't have any rats, which is why uh, my wife and I are traveling at your the moment. Your logo is a rat. It is, yeah. It's, it's one, a, of, one of your rats specifically, hot, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's a hot pink. Um, Ari was the name of the rat, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, you. Uh, yeah, I've, I've noticed you've, in, in past, when I've, when I've been on social media, you really seem to, like, care for them and love them almost as as, as if they're child uh, they're your own children um but there is there's something that there's this dichotomy because we think of rats like if a rat was just in my house right now i'd be like do whatever i have to do to get this out of here and then i see so much like love and caring from you yeah. it's it's like the other side to it's the opposite of your, your well it's the same thing as your business philosophy but it's in your personal life your business philosophy is like no it doesn't have to be this way 
Yeah, I like, and that's why I like to share about pet rats because they're very smart, they're very social, they love the humans that they bond with, and they yeah they they become like family. We have our we had uh, when we had rats, we had our vet, um, we had her cell phone number, <laughs> so we could text her when uh, when a couple of them would get sick. What's the lifespan on one of these these rats? Two years. Oh, it's wow. it's hard. Like it it hurts my heart Every to time. have them for two years and then lose them, which is another reason why we're taking a break right now because it's hard to it's hard to connect so deeply with a little creature and then have them pass away. So we're yeah we're on a we're on a break. We're not allowed to visit the SPCA in our area right now. This is ha- this has to build up your letting go muscle in a way that makes all the stuff the physical things in your life seem so inconsequential because you're like it's a table it's a microphone it's a coffee cup why am i really struggling to get rid of this thing or whatever you you don't worry about that when you're when you're letting go of these things you've actually cared for these these living beings that you've cared for you have to it's a process of letting go in a way that i assume has made you stronger emotionally yeah, I mean, you kind of you kind of really get to like there's no wasted minutes. Like when you only have when you have 2 years with with a little being, then there's not there's no wasted minutes because you know like you can watch them get older, you watch them get sick much faster. The last rat that we had Lincoln had cancer and we had uh tumors removed probably 4 times over the last couple months of his life and yeah it was we could watch the tumors growing from like day to day to day and like it was it was tough man like it was it was really really tough but on the other side we knew that we loved him and that he had a good life and when he stopped having a good life it was time to say goodbye but yeah it's we have to yeah got to let go of them far too often i think we've had not we've adopted nine rats over the course of like 10 years or so so it's been yeah it's been a process but we gave them good we i feel good because like we gave them good lives we were able to care for them we were able to get them like vet help when they needed it and yeah when it's time to say goodbye it's it's time to say goodbye. It's one of those things that you that you also can't control. You're forced to yeah. let go. You can't say, "Well, no, I, you know what? I think I'll keep linking around for one more year." It doesn't work work that way. Uh, I think with many of the things that we struggle with, we realize that they have only the meaning that we that we give to them. And and I I think it's what's admirable about what you're doing is um, w- with respect to these rats is you. You're, you you know going into it, I'm gonna have to let go of this thing and it's mm-hmm. not going to be comfortable. Yeah. You're you're putting yourself in what I call the discomfort zone. It's a title of a, a Jonathan Franzen book, um, but you're putting yourself in this discomfort zone. I think when we do that, that's the place from which we grow the most, and that can start with our stuff. Like I'm really uncomfortable getting rid of anything right now. Okay, then get rid of something. Yeah. That's putting yourself a little, at least a little bit in the discomfort zone. Get rid of something that really means something to you and you start to realize that, oh, wow, it probably didn't mean what I, what I thought it meant. And what, what does have meaning are these, these moments, the, the now yeah. and how we spend that now. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? Like I would trade any single thing in my house for like another year with any of those pets, right? Like easily, like it would be instant. doesn't matter, car, anything, like I would just, if I could spend more time with them, that would be great, yeah. right? Because they mean so much more than any of the things that I have. And you, that really, with two years, like that really becomes pretty evident. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's. Uh, I'm gonna get into the rest of this article here. It's easy to get caught up in the game of false markers because they're alluring and they seem like valid signals. Uh, that's so true. I mean, and the problem with that is the more there is, there will always be more. There will always be a Kim Kardashian or some other Kardashian or Jenner that has more followers than you. Yeah. Deal, deal with it. You know, um, and if that becomes the marker. Uh, then, then the question is why? Like, why is a million followers better than half a million, or ten thousand, or one thousand? Uh, why is that a more appropriate amount? Would you rather? Is it just because you have this this the status symbol? It's the you know, it's the the online equivalent of owning a Lamborghini. Um, okay, but like, is that even practical for me? Because if you have a million followers, but they don't really care, they're not engaged with what you want them to engage with, then then who really cares in the first place? Sometimes a lot of social followers uh, doesn't translate into any money, though. I know too many social influencers who don't make enough to support themselves adequately. Uh, so, some people got mad at me because I tweeted, I've never been influenced by a social media influencer. Uh, and and I think the reason yeah, that I, I I said that is like I think pe- someone who you don't get to de- determine whether or not you are influential. I get to determine yeah. whether or not you've influenced me, exactly, right? Yeah. You can't say, "All right, Josh, I'm here to influence you today." <laughs> I mean, that, uh, that 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 doesn't I don't know that that doesn't really help help me understand what you're trying to accomplish. I've been influenced by a bunch of people, none of whom have ever called themselves influencers. Yeah, I think it's a it's like if you put guru in your bio, it's <laughs> it's hard like it's hard to it's hard to take that seriously. Yeah, I mean unless you're doing it ironically. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so, um, all right, we'll get back into this here. I've had companies send emails to their million person mailing list about my products and watch all of zero sales come from it. You know. That's so true. We've Ryan and I have been on the Today Show four times, I think. Yeah. And there are, I mean, uh, we were on Christmas Day in 2014, and apparently nine million people are watching it. Yeah, they can check it from the Nielsen ratings or yeah, whatever. Yeah. That sounds awesome. But I think a thousand people showed up on our website out of the nine million. <laughs> like it was effectively nothing. Like yeah. what would have been. What would have been better was to be on a small podcast with a with a a really eager audience that wants to support the things that they're interested in. Um, there are other times that we've been on platforms that I figured had a much smaller reach. Like we were on the front page of Yahoo once, and I'm like, "Who still reads Yahoo in 2015 or whenever it was?" Yeah. And it crashed our website for two days straight because. Yeah, there are there were enough people who saw the thing and they clicked through, and and so some of these things are yeah, they're they're markers of status and and I'm far less concerned about being on the Today Show. In fact, they asked us to be on last year, and I really we said yes, but they had we had them come out here as opposed to us flying <laughs> to New York for it, right? Because nice. it 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 didn't make sense for us to spend several days for a four minute segment on there. Yeah, TV's a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> and and so. I think maybe that's the other question here is like, what's the cost of, of acquiring 
and then managing and maintaining this social media presence. For us, we have a literal cost. We pay Jessica every month to yeah. manage our social media accounts. Now, every word on there is is ours. It's something that, that we have written or we've directed her to write on our behalf, uh, but it's something that either me or Ryan ha- has written. She curates everything for us, and she finds the appropriate use of, of each platform so that we're not chasing a follower count, right? I'm not yeah. trying to figure out like, oh, uh, yeah. Hey, Jessica, what can you do to get us to a million Instagram followers by the end of Q3? Because <laughs> um, why? Yeah. The why for me is how can I use this platform to best add value? And if it's Twitter, it's it's text and, and responding to people. If it's Instagram, it's like, what are some beautiful photos that we can put with some of our essays or short quotes? If it's Facebook, what's the best way for us to share the links? And uh, we find the, the way that's appropriate for us. It doesn't mean it's going to be appropriate for anyone else. But I've never once went to Jessica and said, hey, um, wh- how can we get to another 100,000 followers on this particular platform? Yeah. Just, that's not meaningful to me. Yeah. But I also think what you said a second ago is so important. You said that you didn't like the cost of that opportunity. I think every opportunity has a cost. Yes. Every opportunity has uh, a debt or a maintenance cost associated with it. So if you say yes to this opportunity, this amazing opportunity, right? You're also saying yes to the work that has to be done or the time that has to be put in or the effort that you have to put in to do the thing or maintain the thing or keep the thing going. And a lot of times we're like, well, I just feel so good that I've been presented with this opportunity, right? I'm like, I can't, I can't say no. Right. Like, I almost feels like a godfather moment. Like, I can't I can make you an offer you can't refuse. It's like, you kind of can, yeah. right? Like, if it doesn't, if it doesn't suit you, if it doesn't suit what you want, you can say no. Yeah, you're probably still not posting to MySpace, right? <laughs> and, and there was a there was a time where you made your last MySpace post or or, or whatever. And you don't feel compelled as a new business to say, well, you know what, just in case I'm going to hop on the MySpace. I mean, maybe some people do, but by and large, I don't think anyone's even thinking about that. You can treat these other platforms the same exact way. For every one social media platform that, that Ryan and I are on as the minimalists, I mean, I don't really use social media personally at all except for Twitter at this point. Yeah. Um, and that's just because I really enjoy that platform. I, that's the one I do get value from. I found I wasn't getting value from Facebook or Instagram personally. It doesn't mean that other people don't get value from those things. But for every one platform that we're on, there are 10 other ones out there that we're not on. And it's okay. Yeah. The world keeps turning. And by the way, we, uh, when we talked to Cal Newport about this, we've he, he even posited to us like what would happen if you guys were no longer on social media at all mm-hmm. and I, I think we use social media very deliberately at this point uh, and in a way that we only use it to add value to people's lives but if i ever felt like this the the opportunity cost is too high here i'm willing to walk away and i think that's that's the most important thing yeah and even he a big advocate of social media detoxes i've done a bunch of them over the last couple of years. And I think sometimes we don't realize the effect these platforms are having on us yeah. or having our, are having on our lives until we leave for a bit. Mm-hmm. Like when I left in, I was on Instagram for a, a little while. And when I left, I felt happier and better. And I was like, why, why, why go back? Yeah. Right. Like it just, it doesn't make sense. Whereas things like Twitter, I like, like I've even met you on Twitter. Yeah. Like I, I have connections and meaningful relationships with people on there that I'm sarcastic with. So 
I'm going to keep using it, but like I've never felt the need to sign up for Facebook or LinkedIn or things like that. So they're, they're not really doing anything and they, I don't need those for my business or for my personal life. Right. And it seems like a, just in case is always a, is a bad, is always a bad reason. Uh, there are, Ryan and I like to make this distinction between just in case and just for when there are some things that you will, that you need just for when, um, it's easier in the, the physical world to say, you know, you don't buy your toilet paper one sheet at a time, right? You know, okay, I'm going to buy these four rolls of toilet paper, whatever, because I'm going to have that just for when. I know I'm going to need it. Now, there are other times where we have this drawer full of cables that you're like, I don't even own a BlackBerry anymore, but I still have, you know, three charger, the three chargers for this BlackBerry. I'll hold on to that just in case I might need it someday in some non-existent hypothetical future. And that's what we're doing with a lot of the these social media things. Like, well, I, I better have it just in case or because everyone else is doing it. Yeah. And, and then I feel compelled to do it. I think the easiest way to walk away, though, is to never get started in the first place. And so bringing it in only if you really feel like it's going to to add value to the business. Sean, if you put a link to this article, it's called Money Than Everything Else. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but uh, it's three pages here and folks can check it out. Um, talking about money being an important part of the business, but also I think it's pretty clear that it's not the primary driver in doing what you do. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that, that's true. Because I think money is, is a means to freedom, right? So if we have enough money and if we figure out what enough is, mm-hmm. because it, like we said, it, it's different for everybody. But I like to ask myself, like, how much is enough? How will I know when I've reached it? And what will change if I do? If I don't have a good answer to the third one, it's like, then maybe I don't need more. Maybe Maybe the money I'm making right now is enough so the the article isn't arguing for like all the money or more and more and more money it's arguing for like okay find out what money you need to keep your business afloat to keep you comfortable and then work towards that yeah yeah we've got some questions here before we dive into those let's play a little overrated or underrated apple products I have an iphone i like it i guess for a phone i had an apple watch for a day it was so no it kept and i know you can turn all these things off but it kept bothering me all day when i was trying to do stuff (laughs) so i just i put it back in the box i'm like okay done so i think it depends on the apple product like i use a an apple computer i like it Mm -hmm. there there could be better i don't know but i think some apple products are good some apple yeah i i can't i can't wear an apple watch yeah i think they're appropriately rated yeah yeah i i think that you know, for me, I use an iPhone, although I still want to... I have dreams about going back to my BlackBerry seven years later. <laughs> um, you damn Canadians made an amazing phone yep. that uh, you stopped making. And um, yeah, it's 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 been literally haunting my dreams. But uh, yeah, I, I get value from their products. I'm certainly not an Apple fanboy. I do really appreciate the amount of, of uh, at least theoretical security and lack of, of uh, snooping that they seem to be doing relative yeah. to Google or uh, Facebook or these other companies um, because they're a product manufacturer first and they're not turning you into the product by, by yeah. stealing all of your data. They're, they're, their business model is making money from the things they sell, not selling you. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, and, and they've done a great job, especially through, you know, through Steve Jobs, of creating some beautiful products that work really well. I think, unfortunately, we've turned that iPhone into from this phone-slash-music device into a 
a suck all the attention out of my day device yeah. and that's where it becomes a problem so i don't have any social media on my phone i don't i don't have any email on my phone and it's not because i think those things are inherently bad or evil i think that they are a huge distraction for me same i turned notifications off probably 10 years ago on all my devices and it had like my business isn't ruined. I still know how to do things. The only exceptions are text messages, which I don't really get unless it's like, hey, can you meet at this place five minutes later than we said or five minutes earlier and calendar notifications uh-huh. because those help tell me what I need to do for the important things. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, I don't have I have email on my phone right now because I'm traveling and I'll do I, that too when we're on tour. Yeah, I tried for the first day. I was like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> like, I needed that email. And so I have email installed right now, but I'll uninstall it when I get home. Yeah, and I, uh, with Instagram, the only time I probably haven't posted a photo on Instagram in months, um, I hop on the, the actual website and I will um, uh, just check in on what we're posting at the minimalist and make sure everything's looking good and give yeah. Jess su- suggestions. But if I want to post a photo myself, I have to download the app, post it, and then I immediately uninstall it. <laughs> and so it prevents me from, in, in fact, I, you know, I don't know next time I'll even be over there and I don't check my DMS as a result. Like there are better ways to, to communicate with me. Yeah. Um, it's just a barrage and I feel like I can't possibly keep up with every, and and this isn't just me because we have a certain number of, of followers, but chasing those that, that number of followers is, is not why I'm on there in the first place. I mean, you can get overwhelmed with having 150 Facebook friends or 500 or, or I mean, I think your average person now has well over 500 Facebook friends, right? <laughs> and that becomes overwhelming if everyone is messaging you and you're checking the, the stream and the updates. It, it, it becomes overwhelming and... Um, it certainly doesn't add value to your business. No. All right, we've got, uh, oh, Microsoft Excel, overrated or underrated? I use spreadsheets. I don't use Excel, but I use spreadsheets to do pretty much everything in my business. Uh-huh. So, I yeah, I don't use Excel because I use the Google Doc version of it because sure. it's just handier and it's free. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I used Microsoft Excel uh, extensively. In fact, it got to a point where I had to... I, because there's only 65,000 rows on a spreadsheet. Uh, we, when I was in the corporate world, I had to start using Access, Microsoft Access. And um, I will tell you, um, I I was very analytical in in that world of, of data. And I've become less analytical now, far less. In fact, I've, I've developed probably an unhealthy allergy to analytics to where I get so turned off by any numbers, stats, and figures. But sometimes those things are helpful. And so I think they're probably appropriately rated as well uh, because you can use, like you said, you, you use a spreadsheet to manage your business. Um, you use spreadsheets to manage your business. We use it for certain things as well. Um, I don't let it run the business anymore. The way I talked about it and everything that remains is I was asked to lay off 42 people at, at the corporation that I was at. And basically I had to use spreadsheets to figure that out. Right. And it was like looking at a rainbow in grayscale. Yeah. Because these are real people. And, and yes, I, I had to figure out what 42 people had to go, but these are real people. These are mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and brothers and sisters. And, and they have kids, they have families, they have mortgages, they have bills to pay. And if I'm just, well, let the data figure it out. It's, 
if that's the only thing I'm doing, then it's pretty callous. And so if, if we're letting spreadsheets dictate all of our decisions uh, that we're doing in our business, it's not, you know, I've never seen anything that's incredibly creative, like uh, in a spreadsheet. I've never opened up a book and it's like written in spreadsheet form. Although that would in in and of itself be creative because it's so different. Yeah, yeah. But there's a reason that um, most works of art are not um, are not spread spreadsheet driven. Yeah, I mean, I would rather let my business be driven by what I want and then use the data for a bit of insight than just be like, this is what the data says. This like, there's a human. Like, I'm a human running the business. I want to be able to make decisions that may be worse for profit but better for people. And if I want to make that decision, a spreadsheet's never, ever, ever going to tell me that. Yeah. But if I, I can just think about it and like, okay, this makes sense for right now. And I think a lot of times with spreadsheets or with anything else, when we get into the numbers, we start to separate the humanity from the numbers. Right. Like if I think, oh, I have like a thousand followers on Twitter, it's like, oh, that's not very many because somebody else has more. And it's like (laughs) it's a thousand or like as mailing list, I only have like 150 people on my mailing list. It's like if you put 150 people in front of you and you had to talk to them like you're talking to them through your mailing list you'd probably have a bit of stage fright because you're, you're talking to that many people. So anytime that we separate the the people from the data, it, it becomes kind of like dehumanizing, I guess, a little bit. I remember the first time I had to give a training course in the corporate world in front of uh, a retail store of eight employees. And I was terrified to, because getting up and speaking in front of them was like uh, these nerves. And eventually I got used to that and branched out to having these larger things. Eventually I was speaking in front of 150 people and I was terrified when I first started doing that. Right. And so you're right. When we look at oh, 150 Twitter followers, like what? That's a ton of people. Yeah. And getting up now, we just had an event. Uh, where it was in Hollywood, right? With uh, Colin, Colin Wright. Um, we he and I hadn't been in front of a crowd in I don't know, damn near a year, and because we haven't been on tour for a while. And just getting up and speaking in front of 120 people, I, like the butterflies came yeah. back. And I'm like, but any day I can tweet out to way more than that, and it's nothing. But maybe it should be something. And, and maybe we should be a little bit more, I hate being too precious with anything, but a little more precious with that because otherwise we're wasting other people's most precious resource, resource and it's their attention. And so I'm not adding value if I'm just adding to the noise. Yeah, You can tweet that podcast, Sean. We got some questions here. Oh, uh, water coolers, overrated or underrated? I've never worked at a job with a water cooler. (laughs) I haven't worked. I've worked for myself for 20 years. So if there was a water cooler at my house, it would just be me and the rats and maybe my wife, Lisa, just like, hey, how's it going? (laughs) Yeah, I think that uh, we always hear like water cooler commentary or water cooler, you know, conversations. And and, uh, I don't think those ever happen at the water cooler, right? Yeah. So there's something else that is appropriately rated, right? Because... Yeah, you get it because you have water, but you're probably not having actual water cooler conversations. Those are happening at your desk or or in some break room or randomly in a hallway. Um, corner offices. Overrated or underrated? I'm, I'm not sure. I've never had a corner office. I only have one window in my office right now. And I love Is my home. corner? Uh, yeah. Well, no, because there's only one window. I think there would have to be two windows for it to be a corner office. I think you need windows... Uh, in order to define corner office correctly, you would need windows on two sides. Two of the four walls would need to be windows, I think. Yeah, I was a director of operations for 150 retail stores, and I had a corner office. And 
it was basically a closet that was in the corner. I mean, it was <laughs> so tiny. And so, like, I technically had this this corner office, but it was laughable. But also, like, yeah, windows are better than not having windows for sure. But um, just because a prison cell is well-decorated doesn't mean that you're not still in prison. Yeah, exactly. If it if it works for, for what you want, if it's giving you if it's giving you some kind of value to have an office with two windows instead of one. Yeah. Maybe that's good. Uh, I think they're overrated overall. And and working here, um, we're in a sort of co-working space. We have our own, uh, where we work, by the way. Um, we have our own studio here that we, we built out ourselves. We have a, a little storage closet where Jordan and Sean keep all of our um, equipment when we're not recording. And... I don't have my own office, and I've done that intentionally. None of us have an office. We work together or we go off and work on our own in a a sort of shared space. But I also, I've realized that for me, like I don't want to get trapped in the come into my office sort of mindset that I used to have. Um, All right, last thing, Uh, overrated or underrated, audio books. For me, they're overrated completely. I can't, I can't listen. I can't, I don't learn through, and my wife will agree. I don't learn through listening. (laughs) (laughs) So, but I like, I have to, like, I, I like to read. So Mm -hmm. reading for me is is the best medium. But then if I look at my own book sales, most people like audio books. So. Right, right, and and I think especially with the advent of podcasts, because of the multitasking thing, you know what's what's fascinating. I've seen some stats that ninety percent, roughly ninety percent of uh, of people in North America are visual learners. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would think reading would be a part of that. Ten percent, roughly ten percent, are auditory learners, which is me. I'm one of the that ten percent, and I think there are about seven psychopaths who are kinesthetic learners. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that, that um, yes, I probably retain more from uh, audio than reading. I'm one of the rare people who, who actually retain more from, yeah. from, from the audio. But, but Ryan does something that's really fascinating. Um, he will, re- for retention, when he really needs to retain, retain something, he will listen to the audio book as he reads the book. Whoa. And now you'll read it much slower, but he'll find himself underlining. And he says he retains significantly more by doing that. So if you're listening to this, I encourage you to get both our audio book and <laughs> the physical book. And while you're at it, get the ebook as well. It will help pay for uh, podcast Sean's children's tuition. Um, questions here. Stacy from Patreon says, I really appreciate that Ryan challenged the old adage. If you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Man, we hear that one a lot. Let's, uh, we'll expand on that. Uh, Stacy says my corporate job, my, my corporate America job allows me to travel, have hobbies. I love and spend a lot of time doing volunteer work. I'm still restless though. What's a reasonable expectation for balancing what you enjoy and what you have to do. What percentage of your work is stuff you have to do, but you aren't passionate about? It's probably about, for work stuff, it's probably about half, but I have other things in my life outside of work. So for me, I can love my job without loving every trapping of it. So I know I have to put some numbers into a spreadsheet to make my bookkeeper and accountant happy. Although I think they want me to use like Xero or QuickBooks or something like that. I, I need to use software that is more of the times, but I won't. 
Um, so for me, yeah, like I know that some of my work, like it's a job, it's, it's called work, not super happy fun time. So I'm happy to do other things that give my life meaning outside of work. And if I'm doing my job right, then I'm not working. All, like all of my hours aren't taken up by work. Mm-hmm. Like if I work four hours in a day, four or five hours in a day, I'm like, cool, I feel accomplished. Still light out where I live. And then I can go have a bike ride or hike or spend time in my garden. So I don't need my work to give me a ton of meaning, but I do enjoy it when it does have some meaning. But I also like it doesn't have to be. I know that some days it's going to be spreadsheet. Some days writing is my job. I'm not going to always love writing. I'm not going to wake up like, oh, it's time to write. Yeah. Yes. Like sometimes it's just like I I got to write this book. Like I've got to finish this chapter. And right. it's like I'm going to sit down and do that even though it's not I'm not motivated to do it. But then I also find when I get into something I get motivated while I'm doing it. Like the first 15 minutes of writing for me is always like, this is the worst thing ever. And then like 15 minutes later, I'm like, like I'm excited. in the flow. Yeah, yeah, I'm into it. So yeah, I find the same is true. And uh, when I talk to I teach a writing class online and when I talk to students about this, I often encourage them. I say, all right, for the next 30 days, here's what we're going to do. You can say this is terrible. You hate doing it, whatever. We're going to write for an hour a day. Yeah. Because uh, there are there are a lot of bad writers out there that are way more successful than than the person who's listening to this. Just because that bad writer writes more than them, that's the that's yeah. the the difference, right? Yeah. They're they're sitting down. Uh, four words that changed my life with respect to writing is sit in the chair, um, and and I don't mean that literally. I mean you can have a standing desk. I don't care, but like actually doing the work, sitting down for an hour, two hours, three hours a day and being willing to drudge through the drudgery. That's where all the real payoff is. Because like you said, when, when you first start, yeah, you might want to put your head through a wall. Maybe it's not going great. Maybe you're deleting a bunch of stuff, but maybe it's going to lead to something more meaningful. Although what I'll say is you, you bring up a really good point about finding meaning in our work. It's one of the, the great... Um, it's one of the great tragedies of our time right now, especially, you know, I'm from the industrial Midwest and, and Dayton, Ohio is a, a city that was a car city. Um, and, and a lot of people lost their jobs, their careers, their livelihood. And, uh, they didn't just lose that though. They lost the meaning in their daily lives because we give so much meaning to what we're doing as our job. And I think what you're advocating for there is balance. So you can find meaning in your work. And it's great if you do that. You can find meaning. By the way, it's all meaningful. You, you can find meaning being a janitor at a gas station. There's something meaningful in that. And if you're doing your job to the best of your ability, I appreciate that as a customer going in there. So, so you are adding value to people's lives. It's all meaningful. But when that is the only meaningful thing in your life, that becomes dangerous. Yeah, I want I want a job that supports my life, not a life that supports my job. Like I just want to do the work and then have fun and and do whatever outside of it. And I think that I think what you said is true. Like it's we end up putting we put so much stock in that and it's sometimes tenuous, right? Like we could lose our job especially if we work for somebody else. We're not in charge of our continued employment all the time. Like good people can lose their jobs through downsizing or corporate restructuring or however you want to call some people getting um not being able to work there anymore. And when we put all of our, it's hard, like if, if, we're, if we're talking about self-worth, it's not self if there's an external thing driving the worth there, right? Ooh. 
So it, it becomes really tenuous and it's like, well, this is good when it's good, but then it can be really bad if something changes or something happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another question here from Lindsay on Patreon. Lindsay says, I run a successful small business with just one other employee. We've grown to be friends over the five years she's worked for me, but I find it hard to separate our friendship from our work relationship. Frequently, when I give her direction as her boss, she takes it personally or gets offended. What would you, what would help keep our work relationship separate from our friendship? I could talk about this a little bit, but do you have any initial thoughts? It's messy. <laughs> it is. It, well, even like thinking about the people that I work with, like I wouldn't want to work with somebody that I wouldn't want to be like it, it. Friendship isn't mandatory, but like. I do really like working with people that I have things in common with or that I like having conversations with because I work for myself. Just because I work for myself doesn't mean I have to work by myself. Like I like working with other people. And so the the freelancers that I hire, the partners that I bring on, like I like that we're kind of friends. Like I like that we can have conversations about things that aren't work but at the same time yeah it 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 can get a bit messy it's humans involved it's all, it's almost always going to get messy yeah i with, with lindsay i think what she might accidentally be doing and i know this from past experience myself is i think lindsay you might be putting yourself on a on a pedestal and and i i'm only picking that up from the language that you're using so let's go back to this question and dissect it a little bit uh, we've grown to be friends over the over the five years, she has worked for me, okay, as opposed to we have worked together. Yeah. And, and and so I often will say that, like, we are all working together. I just happen to have the final veto here, right? And, and, but we're all giving input. And Jordan has input. Sean has input. Jessica has input. Jeff or Dave have input. Like, whenever we're working together, working with Matt Diavella, he has all the input on the – in fact – the other part of that is bringing people on that you trust and to to do that as good or better than what you're going to do. Like Sean produces our podcast. He does a better job than I would on my own. So I have to trust him. Now, it doesn't mean that I can't provide some input, but I can do that with my friends as well. Yeah. I, I can provide input. And so putting yourself on the pedestal saying she works for me, yeah, it probably doesn't feel very good for her to work for you as opposed to work with you, right? And the other thing that you said is frequently when I give her direction as her boss, I mean, I, the reason I don't work in the corporate world anymore is because I didn't want my boss giving me direction, right? I wanted to work together to find the appropriate direction. Now, that might also mean that, and I know we all have egos, I certainly have one, but being willing to just set that ego aside for a moment and say, all right, what is this person's input? Now, if ultimately Sean comes to me with some terrible idea, we're good enough friends that I can say that's a terrible idea. But guess what? He can also say that to me. Yeah. Josh, that's a stupid idea. Um, uh, every every Sunday, we, we publish a, a new essay on our website, you know, similar to what you do with, with your newsletter. And uh, I'll write a 400-word essay, and he'll give me... 14 to 20 bits of feedback <laughs> on 400 words yeah. and it'd be easy for me to say ah sean doesn't know what he's talking about but no i trust him i've enlisted him to say you know what i appreciate this we don't always agree and i'll veto some things but there'll be some times where i'm like i don't agree but i trust sean enough that i'm going to take his recommendation yeah even though i'm not really sure about this one let me let me 
because uh, I'm not married to anything. I'm willing to let go to cede my power to him. I think ultimately that makes what we work on together better as a result. For sure. I mean, my copy editor can say for any article that he's um, copy editing for me, this isn't good enough. And I'm like, good. You caught that before I sent that to my entire mailing list. So thank you yeah, for telling me. person instead of tens of thousands of people. Exactly. And for the, for the other people that I work with, if I can't, if we disagree about something, the person who can convince the other is basically the, it's like truth through, through consensus, I guess, where if I bring up an idea and they're like, this is a bad idea. I'm like, well, I got to convince you it's good or you have to convince me it's bad. And then we can move forward with that. And it's like, I almost like arguing with my business partners because it's like, we're getting to the truth. We're getting to the best thing for this thing. And as well, I think with this question, it's like, you both want the same thing. You both want the the small business to do well. You both want the small business to continue its operation in the long term. So if she's doing something that isn't in line, the, the employee, if, if they're doing something that isn't in line with keeping the business running, then it's not a matter of you wanting her to do this. It's a matter of like, in order for the business to do as well as it possibly can, things might need to change or this one, maybe this one thing needs to change, right? So it's like not just me saying like, hey, you have to do this. Like I'm the boss here. You got to do it. It's like, this is what the business needs to survive. Like this is what we, this is what we need to do to keep our clients happy, our customers happy. And then it's, it's, it's reframing it from like, this is my command on high down to you. It's like, this is what the business needs. Like you can't, how can you argue with that? Yeah. And so you said something there that maybe they want to make sure they're getting in alignment with is you said they both want the same thing for the small business, but do they? Maybe yeah, they yeah. don't know whether or not they both want the same thing. It's a good conversation to have. Yeah, maybe Lindsay doesn't even know what she wants yeah. for the for the small business, and maybe her her sitting there having that conversation with herself first and saying, "I need to do a better job communicating what our what our business wants, and and how can I communicate that in one line or one paragraph or one minute, and and, and being able to expand upon that with this person that you're working with, not the employee that directly reports to you. The thing they'll often say with, there are about 12 of us on the minimalist team, you know, full-time, part-time, whatever, is that it's a democracy with a benevolent dictator. Hmm. And I mean, ultimately that Ryan and I will have the final say in things, but I want other people, I want to be able to trust their creativity because Jordan knows a whole hell of a lot more than me about, about filmmaking. And Jessica knows a whole hell of a lot more than me about curating. And I can tell them what my vision is, but it's equally important how they plan to execute on that vision. And so working together, I think, is key. Madeline says, could you go over some ways that you've applied minimalism to your business, specifically your brick and mortar coffee shop? Now, you talk about brick and mortar businesses in your book, right? Yeah. Um, I think too often we often we think that like, well, if if I want my business to be legitimate, then I need a storefront or I need an office space or I need, you know, a place for clients to, you know, whatever. Can you talk a little bit about the this this concept and how it has metastasized into our to our culture? Yeah, it, it basically running a business to look good for other people. Like that, that's really what it seems like. It seems like, well, if I want my business to be legitimate, then I do need to have things like an office or like a, a nice couch 
that that people can sit on while they're waiting to meet with me and it's like even like even smaller things like having an office at all for me I, like i don't I, I don't need an office i don't meet with people for work mm-hmm. like i just i never most people think i don't exist because i don't do things um in, in public very often but it's like I want to run my business for me. I want to run, run my business for what's best for me and the freedom that I want in my life that my business can provide. And so when I'm thinking about decisions, it's like, is this decision just going to look good for the outside world? In which case, eh, maybe maybe I don't need that. Or is this decision going to give me more peace and freedom? Mm. It's like, mm, yeah, okay, I, I want that one instead of what looks good on Instagram. Yeah. And so I think the question then becomes is, is the brick and mortar business necessary with respect to our coffee shop? So we, we, we got into this coffee shop in a weird way. Um, so our friends, Joshua and Sarah Weaver, who have done a lot of photography for us, in fact, they did the photo on this book and I think this one, yeah, on Essential. So they, they just did a lot of photography. We hired them. They're freelance photographers. Yeah. And also they worked for this design firm. And they were they were kind of tired of, of doing what they were doing. And they wanted to find a way to have a community space. And, well, what does a community space look like? There are a bunch of different things. But for them, they were really passionate about coffee. And so a community space probably does require a brick and mortar presence, right? That was the what that they wanted to accomplish. Now we could figure out the where and the how and the why all those things are important to ask, but, um, they, we, we, we wanted to help them uh, open the shop. And the way we wanted to help is we screened our documentary down there, uh, in St. Petersburg because St. Petersburg is where minimalism all started for us. Uh, my mother lived down there. I really fell in love with the community. And uh, when she passed, uh, that's where I had to actually deal with her stuff. And and so I really enjoyed the community down there. Love the people. There's a lot of culture per capita in St. Petersburg, Florida. And they're opening this coffee shop because it was pretty much a coffee desert. There was not great coffee. There were Starbucks and 7-Eleven and but there was not uh, there was not a good co- now there are several but mm-hmm. there was not a great coffee shop back then, and so we're like oh yeah let's help our friends so we'll go screen our documentary well we get down there about three days before it's about to open, and their funding their final funding had fallen through, and they were like we don't think we're gonna be able to open the, the shop we don't have enough money and so. Ryan and I went to him and said, okay, how much money do you need? Let's see if we could find a way to raise it. And literally how much money they needed was about all Ryan and I had saved for the last I don't know, five or six years. Yeah. And we just said, okay, we believe not in the brick and mortar space. We believe in what you're trying to accomplish here. We believe in you as people and we want to work with you. And so let's partner in this business. And now we're actually opening a restaurant with them in, in the same space. And so that brick and mortar space is... Uh, it makes sense, you know, to have a restaurant, but even then it's not a, it's not going to be all that we're doing is very minimalist with respect to our approach. It mm-hmm. is, it's not cutting corners, but what is the, the minimum viable equipment, minimum viable customer base that we need? Yeah. We're not trying to get every person in St. Petersburg, we're trying to find what is what do we need in order to have the the doors open, pay our employees, pay the owners a a living wage, but also we're not we're not focused on how do I get a line down the block? How do I have the most popular coffee shop in town? 
having a brick and mortar business makes sense. Understanding that it's also going to man, there's there's more overhead in that business than there is in <laughs> in this far more popular business that we have called the minimalists yeah. because. We have employees and we have to be there every single day from open until close and people call off and, oh, there is insurance and we have to pay rent and there is heating and air. We've got this big old building and it's hot as hell in Florida. So it costs a lot to air condition this place in the summer. Yeah. And so there are all these embedded costs that you have to think about because, um, the margins on coffee are decent, but you have to sell a lot of cups of coffee in order to pay to air condition a place in the summer in Florida. Yeah, there's um the yeah the more basically the more the more expenses you have, the more responsibility that comes with it, right? So you need to make sure that you do have the ball. It's just I I, I it's kind of similar in my business. I went from having probably ten to fifteen customers a year when I was doing design for client work to doing products like books where like I can't sell 10 books a year and, and live. Right. So I needed to make sure like, okay, can I, can I make sure that there is a volume there? Like, am I going to be able to reach enough or am I currently reaching enough people to be able to move into a product business where there does need to be vo- like there just needs to be volume in, in that kind of business. And if the answer is yes, then okay. Yeah, it makes sense. But I still like, make sure I keep my expenses as low as possible. I don't have an office space. I live pretty leanly. So I know that like, even if it's a, a like slow month with book sales, that it is going to be okay. And then I also, for my own business, I also kind of diversify. It's like diversifying in investments. It's like, I don't know how to invest in individual stocks, but if I just use index funds, then it's kind of investing in everything. And then it's kind of diversified. So in my business, I have podcasts that generate a bit of income, courses, books, software company. So it's easier to see like, okay, well, if one thing isn't doing as well, then other things will hopefully pick up the slack. And then it's just as long as I keep the expenses down, and I don't think like, well, a legitimate business, as soon as you start thinking like, oh, a legitimate business needs X, then it's like, then you get into tricky territory. Or even things like mailing lists. Like I prune my mailing list all the time. If people aren't opening my emails, they're not getting value from them. So I can delete them. And people are like, well, how do you like how do you get over like deleting thousands of people from your mailing list? I'm like, they cost me money. Like if they're getting no value from it, if I'm getting if I'm only having to pay for people who don't get any value from the things I'm writing, I you bet I'm gonna delete them. Like I feel good removing them. They're not gonna get emails they don't want anymore. I'm not gonna be paying for people that are getting emails they don't want anymore. So yeah. I keep my costs low. And they can resubscribe if they decide. Totally. You know what? It's I'm not banned from PaulJarvis.com <laughs> forever. <laughs> but but at the same time that you're no longer paying for them because they're not a, a customer of yeah, yours. Yeah. And that's an unnecessary expense. And yeah, one email on one email subscriber on a list it, is not the point. It's, it's, it, there's a volume there that leads you to having unnecessary costs. And yeah. the same can be true with anything else. We, in our coffee shop, we have this large, it's an old Porter Paints building and we have this entire backspace. We were renting out to a creative agency for a long time and they're now out of the space. So that's what we're turning into the kitchen for our restaurant. 
because we were getting you know x number of dollars from them every month to help cover part of our rent but now it's just this huge empty space back there initially we thought that creative agency was going to stay there we were going to build a uh, like a, a food container like a, you know the storage containers in, in the parking lot but now we don't need to do that so we're turning the backspace so we're using the space that we have and uh, making more money as a result now there are going to be additional costs associated with that. We, we've hired and partnered with a chef. We're going to have more employees as a result. But at the same time, we'll be able to make more, we'll generate more revenue from from that side of the business. It's not just coffee. It's having good mm-hmm. breakfast options that people can, uh, they're, they're showing up for both things, ideally. Yeah. And if the coffee shop wasn't generating revenue, you probably wouldn't try to grow it. Right. Yeah, that that's true. If uh, <coughs> if we were losing money on the coffee shop, yeah, the, and, and and it's not wildly profitable either. I mean, it is month by month, quarter by quarter, we make a little bit of money. It's not enough for me to make a full-time living from, but it goes to that diversification point. That's one part of what Ryan and I do for our business. Um, you know, we go out and we give, we have speaking gigs, we have Patreon, uh, which really supports the studio space and Sean and Jordan and Jess. And then we have, um, you know, we have book sales, we have films and it, there are all these things, none of which I don't think any of them I would maybe books could make a full time living from if I wrote more books. Yeah. Um, but but other than that, like there are all these different sort of streams of revenue and and it's about tweaking those in a way that doesn't take away from what we're trying to do. I mean, I don't the last thing I want to do is spend 100 percent of my time trying to open up this restaurant. Yeah. Right. Um, and so when we take on something, uh, it has to be something that we're willing to focus our time on. It has to be something we're willing to make a priority because if not, then it's just getting in the way of everything else that we want to do, what we want to create. And man, it's so easy to get caught up in the feeling productive cycle. And, oh yeah, I responded to 400 emails today. (laughs) Okay. But did that accomplish anything? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, sometimes it's just we're, we're moving around stacks of paper on a desk and it's like, well, I'm super productive right now. And no, I'm not. I'm just moving around papers. Yeah. Our next question, I think, is from Abigail. Abigail says, in regards to... Have you done a Myers-Briggs before? You know about Myers-Briggs? Yeah, yeah I've done it. I think I'm the scientist. I was like INTJ or yeah. something like that. So it's I. definitely an I. Yeah, I'm an INTJ <laughs> as well. Um, so, uh, in regards to Myers-Briggs preferences, I'm curious to hear of Joshua's experience leaving the corporate job and coming down off the constant stress. It felt to me like when I left the corporate world, I, it was like driving a hundred miles an hour down a freeway and then just slamming on the brakes. Like there was a month of, I don't want to call it depression. It wasn't that, but it was a malaise of go, go, go busy, 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 busy. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh my God, what I, I feel irresponsible. What am I What am I doing with this time? I'm not crazy busy anymore. And I had to reframe busy to what does it mean to be focused? Yeah. And in real focused work, you can't do for 8, 10, 16 hours a day. Focus doesn't work that way. Attention doesn't work that way, especially not at first. Maybe you can get to a point. You know, there are people who meditate for 12 hours a day. But if you did that now, you might go a little bit insane. 
Um, in fact, there we had Sam Harris on the podcast recently, and he was talking about how it's not always advisable if it, for someone to just go on a 10-day meditation retreat with no experience. They, they might drive themselves mad as a result. And I think it's sort of the same thing where it seems like if I just leave it behind the corporate world, it's going to be peace and calm. But if you don't know what to do with that calm, it can be maddening. It was like... <clears throat> when I moved from the city to the woods, I, I guess what I didn't realize was how much time I would have with my own thoughts. <laughs> like it was, it was a tough first couple months because yeah. I was just used to go, go, go busy, busy, busy. I don't think, has there been any studies on like the downside of this whole productivity movement and like always trying to be productive because I know a lot of people who feel and I mean, myself as well, I'm more in the beginning than now, but like, I, I f- would feel bad if I wasn't being productive. Like, I'd feel like, why, why aren't you doing it? Like, it's three in the afternoon, Paul. Like, why are you out for a walk or like watching Netflix or something like that? And I'd be like, why do I need to be like, why do I need to be busy? Or why do I need to be productive all the time? And I think that the way society works now is it, it kind of like productivity is like how to be more productive. Like, we always need to be more productive. And it's like, Maybe we don't. <laughs> Maybe we don't have to always be productive. Maybe we can be productive for a spell. And it's like nowadays, what I'm like, if I can get like two hours of focus work a day and then probably two hours of other work, it's like good. Like that, that was a good day. But in the beginning, like when I shifted from doing a lot of like agency work and like the deadline was always yesterday in those types of situations. Like if I shifted from that till now, I would probably be depressed Mm. because I would feel like, well, you're not like, you're not being productive. Like what's wrong with you? Even after I finish big things, I feel like there's this, there's this like down cycle for me. Like when I was a musician and like we would come back from tour, it would be like, Oh, like I like I don't have anything going on today. That's always like, the worst. I, yeah. When I came back from a, we did a, a eleven month tour in twenty fourteen, hundred and nineteen events, and that December I tried to take off, yeah. and I was in the worst funk of my adult life. Like it was definitely not depression, but it was like I felt like what is wrong? Like what you just said, what is wrong with me? I'm not productive. Maybe if we flip that around, like if I were to go talk to my uh, most productive self, my 26 year old self, 27 year old self, I, I would probably go talk to him and say, what the hell is wrong with you? Why are you so productive? <laughs> and, and like, because what is all this for? Yeah. Because I also have the benefit of looking in the rear view now and all those stores that I managed at one point are, have either been sold or closed. We, the telecom company I worked for sold that division to a, another wireless company. And, and so all that has sort of been shuttered or transitioned and it wasn't for not like we we served a purpose right then but also it wasn't as important as i thought it was and you know i was working really hard to eventually one day become the vice president of who gives a shit and i real once i once i climbed the corporate ladder long enough i realized like this is busy for busy sake i'm working 80 hours a week to prove to other people how productive i am it was a status symbol for me i was either the first or second person in the office every morning and the only time that i was the second is when my boss was there before me and like he was i was trying to emulate him basically and he was the he would stay late but also he you know was going through why well, two different bosses one of them was going through like a, a second divorce and a, a second heart attack for another one and it was like oh if i work 
if I keep working 80 hours a week every week, I will be just like them. Yeah. That's not what I want. That doesn't mean they were bad people. They just took the path that I was taking. Yeah. And maybe I had to change paths in order to be less pr- productive, but more satisfied. And so today I produce less now, but I think the things I produce are so much more meaningful than what I was producing back then. Same. I think so. Two things. I think that culture trickles down. So when you see your boss doing those behaviors, all of the people that work for him or with him, as, as we talked about, yeah. then that can kind of like you're going to start if you have a workaholic boss or if you are the workaholic boss, then maybe that's trickling down to the to the other people that work there. And so I think that like that's hard to that's hard to deal with. And the second thing is that like there's no badge of honor for working more hours than somebody else. It's like people are always like, "Oh, you must be so busy." I'm like, "No, <laughs> no. If I'm bu- if I'm busy, then I have not my priorities aren't right yeah. at the moment. I've I've taken on more than I should have if I'm busy. So it doesn't mean I'm never busy because I'm sometimes busy. Like especially with the releasing the book a couple months ago, there was definitely a month or two of me working more than usual. But I knew that. I could get through that because like there's an end in sight. Like yeah, it wasn't perpetual. Exactly. Yeah, I find that whenever I say that I'm busy, what I'm really saying is my life is out of control. <laughs> yeah. And there are times, yes, where there uh, my days are more full. So I I use some different vocabulary now because I think vocabulary is important. I vo- uh, avoid the word busy unless I'm truly am busy, and then that's a that's an indicator for me. Like I need to stop being busy. There are other times where my days are full. Tuesdays tend to be pretty full for me. Today's a Tuesday. We're recording this podcast on a Tuesday. And, and so Tuesdays are full, but they don't they don't breach busy. In fact, people ask, you know, can I do something on Tuesday? I know my schedule is already full that day. Yeah. Now, full can mean full for four hours and everything else I'm saying no to, right? So what's the appropriate amount to say yes to to f- make a full day? And then I also say focus. They're like when I'm well, we're working on a new book right now, and like you just said, you know, two hours of, of focus, or for me, it's usually about three hours of, of focused writing. Like that is focus, but it's not busy. Yeah. I have 21 hours left in the day after that, but I am going to be focused for that period of time. So I look at busy, I look at full, and I look at focused as sort of three different things for me. Yeah. We've got one more question here from Derek. Derek says, how do you tell your boss that you're burnt out and you need him to lighten the workload. I don't want to seem insubordinate or unwilling to work, but I also realize that this burnout is hindering my overall life and my work performance. Any advice on managing a high-stress, toxic workplace while I'm still here? And as vague as it is, any tips on finding a more meaningful job after feeling extremely burnt out? So, Derek, you are burnt out. And I think... One of the reasons we get burnt out is the opposite of what Paul just said. We don't see an end in sight because it's it's possible to keep going. You're probably burnt out at mile what twenty two of the marathon or whatever it is. How many miles are in a marathon? Twenty six point two. So money mile twenty five. You're like I am burnt out, but people keep going because there's one mile left. Yeah, and so you realize there's an end in sight. Where I got burnt out is like. There was always that new horizon that you were mentioning earlier. And I would get there and I'd be like, I'm not at the horizon. There's still a new horizon there. And that's what burnt me out. Can you talk about burnout a little bit? 
Yeah, and I mean, I've I've been there too in my in my twenties. I think that's when we think that we should be the most. In my late twenties, I felt like oh, I need to be more productive. Or in my case, it was like if I want to be a legitimate business person, air quotes again, it's like my business needs to make a million dollars a year. And I don't even like, where, I don't know where that number came from. Mm. It was just a number that was like, oh, my business needs to make a million dollars. I didn't know why I needed a million dollars. It was just, well, I need to make a million dollars for to be like legit, to prove people, to prove to people that like, I can go out and work for myself and do better than if I had a job. And I, I yeah, burnt myself out pretty hard. Like I was working 16 hour days. Like I was trying to, I was like, the logic in my head was so sound as well. It was like, well, I make money when I'm working. If I work more, I make more. Therefore, I should just always be working. Mm. And like the, like the logic in my head was like, this makes like, I, I can subscribe to that newsletter. But like, I didn't take into account the fact that like, I wanted to enjoy my life. And then the other fact was like, I didn't know what I wanted a million dollars for. I still don't, I don't make a million dollars a year. I, I, I don't know why I would need to. Well, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I can tell you if, if our business this year somehow made a million dollars, like if, I don't know, if Netflix showed up with bags of money, um, we, we were talking before we started recording, like Netflix, doesn't pay a lot of money except uh and if you, you if you're dave Chappelle or something yeah. it's great but um but they also they offer you the freedom to not have advertisements and they offer you these other freedoms to reach a bunch of eyeballs with your message so if it's a message you believe in and i've realized like i don't i mean it, yeah great if someone shows up and says here's a million dollars we don't need anything from you because of it like if you want to go to our patreon page and donate a million dollars <laughs> great but um I can tell you our business wouldn't change appreciably. Like I'd be, I'd have more money to give for sure. Yeah. Um, which is nice because Ryan and I like to work on one big philanthropic project a year, but the overall structure wouldn't change. I wouldn't all of a sudden be like, well now, now we really need to scale. Now we're making a million dollars. Uh, we got to hire these employees. And I got, Jordan, we need, uh, you know, I don't know what, what we need new cameras and then bigger and better and whatever. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll use like all these. Uh, in fact, that that could be an impediment, right? Like if we use, uh, I need Jordan, I need you get four red cameras in here. Well, then you're just like the, it's going to take forever to edit this, and like it's actually going to, in many ways, get in the way. Now, the money itself wouldn't get in the way, but making poor decisions with that money would yeah. get in the way, and it also gets in the way when we start making the decisions solely for money, and that's because, as you said, we haven't identified what enough is i think if if ultimately you're burnt out because you haven't figured out what enough is for you and it might mean that once you figure out what enough is where you're working has unreasonable expectations if you're adding enough value to the business you can go to them and you can say hey um i can no longer answer my email after 5 p.m now, they're going to look at you like you're crazy, maybe. But if you're adding enough value to the business, then they're going to they're gonna have two choices. One is, well, we don't want the value that he's adding. We can't accept this. We can't set this precedent for other people. Then they're going to have to let you go. Or what's more likely going to happen, if you're truly adding value to that business, they're going to say, okay, we understand. It's a difficult conversation. We have to have this. In fact, we're probably going to argue and we're going to say no at first. But ultimately, you, can, you, you have to figure out what is enough for you and then put your foot down. In terms of finding a more meaningful job after feeling extremely burnt out, I think it's about finding meaning outside of work first. Mm -hmm. I think we, you know, let's say you're working, let's say you're working eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, right? 
Well, that means you have, and let's say you're sleeping eight hours a night, which you're probably not, Derek, but let's just assume you're sleeping eight hours, you're working eight hours, and let's give you another two hours for a commute. You have a terrible commute, and, and now that's, that's 18 hours. And you're like, well, okay, you still have six hours left in your day, six free hours that you get to prioritize however you see fit. Now, maybe that's watching, binge-watching TV. But maybe it's creating something that you find to be meaningful that may or may not turn itself into a business venture, a side hustle, whatever. But it's six hours a day that if you were just to take a third of that, two hours a day, let's say it's writing, you want to write. If you write for two hours a day, a year from now, you're going to be in a totally different stratosphere in terms of skill set, but also in terms of productivity, just two hours a day, a third of your free time, you've created something truly meaningful that you can look back on and say, wow, I, I did that as opposed to you know, just falling down the rabbit hole on YouTube. I think it's also stressful to be like, I need to follow my passion. Like, I don't know what my passions are unless I start trying things or, or doing things. And I think a lot of time, I think it was Austin Cleon who said that people fall in love with the noun and not the verb. So I talk to a lot of people, they're like, oh, I wish I was a writer. I'm like, then write. Like, yeah. <laughs> you just have to be writing, right? To be, a, to be a writer. And I mean, I got in my own head about that quite a bit before. So I understand that and empathize with that completely. But a lot of times we think like, oh, well, this, like, I would be so passionate to do this, even with like music for me, I thought that it would be so great to be a touring musician. And then I forgot how much I dislike travel. It's weird. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm with you there uh, 80% of the way because when we're out on tour, I'm like, I cannot wait to get home. But then yeah. after being home for a while, it's like, I can't wait to go out <laughs> on tour again. It's, it, it's the, I think it's part of the human condition. It's adding that variety. Yeah. And it's finding that balance. Now, that might be, because I truly hate travel. I wish I could teleport directly into the venue and, oh, look, we're in Des Moines now and uh, I'm on stage. Like, that would be ideal. But the cost of doing business, so to speak, we make very little off of going out on tour because we bring Sean and Jordan and Jess with us. And, and um, when we do that, it's so we can find another uh, another another means through which to communicate our message but it's also because i enjoy it i yeah. like doing it i don't like the travel and in fact i'm really uncomfortable in front of crowds of people but that's i enjoy the growth that that comes from that and so i have to f factor in all of these costs when deciding what am i going to do do i find this meaningful and if so is it worth the cost for sure and sometimes it can I think as well, the, the other side of that is that sometimes trying to make, trying to generate revenue from your passion is a really good way to kill it. Yeah. Like for me, turning music into a business, I didn't want to, I didn't even want to pick up my guitar for a couple of years because associated with that was like contact, this is a long time ago. So contacting venues on MySpace, uh -huh. <laughs> we talked about MySpace, doing all the promotion, finding like the college radio stations to it because we were a, we were a touring band and we had our own label because we didn't want to work with a with a big label and so it was like all of the business things kind of killed the the passion that i had for playing music where now it's like i can be a musician by like just sitting in my house and strumming the guitar a little bit if yeah. i want to do that so right. yeah i think that that that's figuring out the why for yeah. you like why am i doing this and 
if you can find a way to turn it into a business that aligns with what you want to do, it aligns with your values, your beliefs, your interests, great. But if not, that's great too. It's still something you're allowed to be passionate yeah. about. Yeah. I would never, people, uh, a couple people have been, because I really like gardening. People are like, well, why don't you make a course on gardening? It's like, I'm never going to make a course on gardening because I just, <laughs> I love doing the gardening. I don't want to teach people about, I also don't think I'm, I would be the best teacher for gardening, but things like writing, part of what I love about writing is, is reaching other people and communicating a message that I have with other people. So it makes sense for me. Like I love writing books. Even though, yeah, it, it can be a drudge sometimes to get to be on chapter one or to be on like page a thousand out of like page 300 or to be on word a thousand and need to reach like 70,000. But I like part of what I like about writing is doing that for other people. Whereas like gardening, I like to do for myself. I don't care about sharing that with other people other than sometimes talking about it because gardeners always like to talk about gardening. But like, I don't need to, I don't think we need to, I think it, it attached to like follow your passion can be like monetize your passion and i think that that can be it can be tricky or really nuanced to to navigate yeah I'll, I'll say this too you can be passionate about multiple things yeah it's not like well paul was he was born to be a gardener <laughs> it's like no you were born to be an astronaut or a yoga instructor or a filmmaker or a writer you can be any of those things. Hell, you can be all of those things as well. But uh, the question then is like, how do I become multiple? How, how do I become passionate about multiple things? And then maybe there's a way to to find a way to add enough value with one of those things. You're solving people's problems that you will earn an income. Ultimately, that's what what any business is about is you're helping people solve their problems. Yeah. And if you are solving problems, eventually money will follow. That. It may not be enough. It might be more than enough. You have to figure out what that is, and it might be supplemental, it might be a side hustle, or it might just be you playing guitar in your living room, and that's great too. Paul, I want to thank you for being here today. I want to encourage folks to check out your book. It's called Company of One. Check out the podcast of the same name, and uh, oh, check out your website as well. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Anywhere else I should send folks? That sounds good. All those things sound great. Beautiful. Thanks for being here, brother. I appreciate it. <laughs> Cheers. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. The Minimalists. <laughs>